0: I feel like I have a lot of good food memories from Costco. Like on Sundays, you know, after we would go to like church, we'd always go to Costco and we would all just, our lunch would essentially just be us going around all the sample tables. We'd have like nine samples each that we could eat.
1: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Frankie Gaw is the author of a new cookbook, First Generation, and one of the most original voices in food writing today. In this episode, we talk about his journey from working at Facebook to authoring his book, which is part recipe collection and part memoir. We also talk about his love of Costco, something I can most certainly get behind, and cooking with Reese's Puff cereal, something I can also very much get behind. I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's a good one. Frankie Gaw, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me, yeah. It's really cool to talk to you. I want to start by having you read some of your book, First Generation. I I love the writing so much. Uh, There's a passage I I called out, and I was hoping you could just kick it off with a little bit of your own writing.
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to read it. Um, So it starts like this. Okay. Um, This cookbook is a series of recipes and stories inspired by my family and the resilience of the immigrant spirit. I'll tell you about a young girl living in an abandoned mansion in the 1940s, an Asian family who adopts whiteness to survive suburbia, a millennial who has it all except his father. Immigrants and their stories and their food are the heart of America and are what make this country thrive. This is just one of those stories told by a proud gay first-generation Taiwanese-American who loves food.
1: Thanks, Frankie. I just wanted you to read that. Um, It sets up some of the concepts and the ideas covered in first generation. But honestly, when did you start writing? Um, you, your background is in tech and you, you started Facebook live and we can talk about that a little later, but when did you start writing?
0: You're you're great. Thank you. You know, what's funny is like, I, I've never really considered myself a writer. Like I've always been a designer by trade. And so I've always seen myself more as someone who likes to like create things, but like, like, whether that's like a digital product or a physical product, but I was never a writer. Like pretty much entire my my entire career, like I had only really started writing for this book. Like I, um, yeah, I had never really written anything professionally. Um, and like the longest thing I would ever written was like a college paper. (laughs) So I mean, outside of work when I had to write like product docs and like PowerPoints, but like I had never written anything creatively. Um, and I never had done anything like in terms of storytelling from a writing perspective until this book. Um, so for me, it was like definitely, Mm -hmm. um, a challenge because I, like I bought, I remember like really vividly, like going on Amazon and literally looking up how to write for a cookbook. And, like, I remember there's a book. I think there's a book called, um, like, Food Writing for Beginners or, like, How to Mm. Write for... And I remember reading it and I was like... um, Like, I had gotten some tips, but a lot of it didn't really resonate with me because, in a way, I was like, oh, I kind of want to, like push the boundaries a little bit of what like a cookbook could be in terms of writing. Cause in the same way, like I I love from a creative perspective to kind of color outside of the box. And I really tried to do that with the book. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like I approached the writing the same way I approached my photography and the creative direction, which was like, how do I tell the story in an interesting way that really can be a vehicle for the story that I'm trying to tell. Yeah. Um, and
1: let me so. ask you uh, about cooking then. So, yeah. so you, you are not a seasoned writer, um, but certainly through the book and through the edits, you've, you've come to a great point of view and voice Thank and, you. and, but you cooking. Are you also kind of an informally
0: trained
1: home cook Yeah, or,
0: or, or what? Yeah. I, I don't consider myself a chef at all. Um, yeah. Like I, I feel like I a lot of my food and my cooking comes just from my family. Like, my family has always been a big food family. Like, I just remember even as a kid, like, my whole entire family just, like, cooking in the kitchen and, like, getting together on holidays. And I feel like I learned a lot just from, like, seeing my grandma and my aunts just, like, cooking, like, these big holiday meals or just, like, you know, on the side prepping Um, And I never really fully started to cook until I was in college slash a little bit after college. Like, I think I've always loved food. I've always loved to eat. So I always (laughs) considered myself, like, a professional eater. But I truly never started to cook until I actively started to think about, oh, like, a lot of these recipes that, you know, I've loved growing up, like, they're going to disappear if I don't learn how to make them. And so a lot of my cooking Mm -hmm. journey started with me, Trying to find out how to make like these really sentimental and nostalgic recipes for my childhood. So
1: let me ask you about cooking in college. Like, were you making like basic college time food, and or were you actually cooking some of the dishes from your from your Taiwanese American background, or or was it an in between? And I we'll talk about that uh, a little later too.
0: I think it's funny. I think my cooking when I was in college it really started as just American cooking. Like i I would make pretty standard you know, college foods. Like, I did grilled cheese. I did a lot of, like, creamy things, like creamy pastas, like Oh, macaroni. shout out to creamy pastas. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I like, shout out. You know, like, Alfredo's. Um, I did yeah. a lot of, like, yeah, just, like, a lot of, like, what you would typically attribute, like, a college dorm meal to be. Um, So I wasn't really being creative. It was more, like, sustenance. But I think it was kind of the first time I discovered ingredients. Like, I used to be such a picky eater as a kid. I hated vegetables. I hated anything that had color. And so I remember learning about different foods from my roommate. She was like um she was like uh she was a really avid cook even in college. So she introduced me to like mushrooms and avocados and things i had like never eaten in my in my you know childhood. Um mm-hmm. and i think that's really what kind of jump started at least the cooking part of my my journey. So,
1: so looking at the recipes in in first generation yeah. um it seems like you've got creamy things in there you yeah. like also got traditional mm-hmm. Taiwanese dishes from your parents and your grandparents. But you've also – you cook with Reese's Puffs and and Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Yes. And (laughs) to me, this is the most modern form of of writing um, a cookbook. And I think Mm. there's other authors, out there. Eric Kim's Korean American comes to mind where it's a real – Testament to this in between, and yeah. you write so so beautifully about the in between. So let's just get into the, the in between. Define this in between cooking that often is being um, expressed these days in cookbooks.
0: Yeah, I think for me, in between cooking really is just, for me at least, cooking that is an expression of trying to figure out one's identity. Um, I think I've always straddled the line between my American culture and my Taiwanese and Asian culture and I think as a kid I used to very much separate those two things like those never would interact like I just like would not you know I would never be Asian in front of my like white friends and at home Mm -hmm. I was completely Taiwanese like I would speak Mandarin I would happily eat all the foods that like my grandma would make but they would never come outside of my home and so i think for me as an adult like when i when i cook these different cultures and bring them together like that to me is like in between cooking of like finding kind of similarities or parallels between two different cultures that i've held very deeply in me and Mm -hmm. trying to celebrate them through food by bringing them together and um you know whether that's like you know finding the parallels of like my love of olive garden and noodles with you know the noodles that like my grandma Mm -hmm. would make as a kid where she would like hand pull all the noodles and and combine them with sauces like I think there's just like so many similarities and, and 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 common kind of textures and ingredients that you wouldn't think could go together but to me like as an asian american immigrant i'm like oh yeah that totally makes sense to me and and i think that's like worth celebrating so
1: let's talk about your upbringing you grew up outside cincinnati yeah. what was it like growing up um with uh you know being an asian american in 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 the midwest um I also am from the Midwest. Oh, and nice. I, I wanna know. Yeah, I'm from Michigan. Oh, you're from Michigan? Um, nice. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, West Michigan. And I, I know you're you're from the Natty, right? Yes. So I got I got you know, we we I'm not a University of Michigan guy, yeah. so I'm not gonna do that Ohio State Michigan thing. Yeah. But um I certainly have much love for Ohio and the cuisine. My wife's from Cleveland. Nice. So I wanna like what was it like growing up? You you tell a great story about going to summer camp and not um, you know Actually, eating the food, the Taiwanese food that your your dad had made you, yeah. and having that sense of like, I, I don't want to eat this food in front of my friends. Yeah, totally. Was it was that was that tough? I mean, I'd like to hear in your words what it was like growing up, or maybe it wasn't hard. Maybe you did adapt and you didn't have the struggles that uh, I, I assume you may you maybe had.
0: Yeah, I think it was tough. Like I, I was like one of the only Asian kids I remember growing up as a kid, and so I felt like I grew up in a very typical kind of like suburban like nineties, early two thousands kind of, uh, environment where, um, you know, I would go with my friends to like the McDonald's and we would eat at Panera bread and we would hang out at Chipotle and like our the target Mm -hmm. parking lot was like where we would meet up. And like, you know, I, I have really fond memories of that, but at the same time, I also, um, suppressed my identity a lot. And so I always felt like I was trying to adapt and survive by just you know never acknowledging my Asianness, and so mm-hmm. uh, yeah like in the book I talk about you know scallion pancakes are like one of my dad's favorite dishes he would make it for me every single weekend and they have such a distinct like smell and texture and they're essentially like a flaky flatbread with layers and there's like scallions in it and it's and it's super delicious and so my dad would make it for me all the time and I was going on this camping trip and he wanted to make them for me to share with my friends. Cause he's like, yeah, this is a delicious food that's unique to your culture. Like you should totally mm-hmm. share it with, with your, your peers. And for me, that was like, I, 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 I took the scallion pancakes and like, literally as soon as I got to the campsite, I remember just tossing them straight into the trash.
1: Be- oh man. Yeah. Because it was just Jeez.
0: like, I didn't want any indicators to kind of make me stand out. Um, I didn't want to be like the Asian kid and I didn't want, um, yeah, I just, I just didn't, I, I, all my goal was always to just like fit in. And so I think at the time, like to bring such a distinctly Taiwanese Asian dish to, to, an, to a campsite and like bring it to a campfire when everyone else is eating s'mores and eating all these things that you would typically hmm. yeah. prescribe to a camping trip like that to me, like, um, was scary and I didn't want to confront my identity in that way at that time because I just wasn't ready. So, so yeah. So I think, yeah, totally.
1: I feel like, um, you, you've just expressed something that many of our listeners may have experienced maybe not with being Asian, but maybe being Jewish or being, um, you know, of a different, of a different ilk in in your culture. And I mean, did you feel like, could you, could you feel more to yourself and your culture when you were with your family? And did you have times where, there was a guilt of of being um you know in that target parking lot and and suppressing some of your asian identity
0: yeah i think there i think there was for sure some guilt because i yeah like i i remember actively suppressing that part of me um and feeling a level of shame, almost like I think I almost started to feel shameful that I was Asian. And I was like, why? Why am I like? Why do I have to like have this burden of having to be different when all I want to do is just you know ha- be be seen as equal and be seen as just like a person, just like everyone else? Um, so I did feel that shame as a kid, which is unfortunate because I think now as an adult, like I almost feel like this is my like. Um, like being different and being, having these unique cultural dishes and, and, and traditions, like to me are like almost like, I feel like it's like my superpower now, but before it was very much like the opposite. Like if I felt like it, it, it made me stand out in a bad way. And, um, it's something I grappled with almost my entire childhood up, up until I was an adult, really like an early adult.
1: So how did creating your, 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 your blog, which ultimately Inspired this book, how did that the act of cooking, um, you know, reignite or ignite this pride of of and this pride of Asian culture in you and Taiwanese cooking? And I guess yeah. there's a tidy narrative that you could say is like you know you're selling a book, you're you know you found your culture through food, but. No. I don't believe that it's tidy, and no. I don't think that this is a narrative. I think that you have expressed such honesty, and it's brave. And, and I, I, your writing, and, and some of the media you've done that I've mm-hmm. I've read, yeah, it's really. I mean, dude, you're you're brave, and <laughs> I just I got a lot of respect for it. But how how did the how did cooking these dishes through your blog, you know, however many years ago? How did that kind of reignite
0: this? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there was a lot of things that kind of led up to to me cooking these dishes and wanting to seek out my cultural identity. I think one of those things was definitely, um, just like more personally, like when I lost my dad, like that was like such a huge pivotal point for me because it, um, it made me reevaluate a lot of my priorities and a lot of like what I considered my, like my values. And so I think at the time I always kind of attributed success to what other people thought success should be. So like, for example, I, um, you know, I was working in tech and I, um, I valued um, just like my title. Like I, I attributed a lot of my identity to my job. Like I was like, oh, like now I have this thing that I can say, like I work at Facebook, I'm a designer, I live in San Francisco. Like I have all these things that I can use to almost like, I guess, cover up a lot of the things that I was suppressing, even as an adult, like, you know, my Asian identity or the fact that I was gay. Like I, I attributed success to, and my identity to my job title and like how much money I was making. And, um, I think when my dad passed away and was going through, you know, everything that he was going through, I think that made me reevaluate a lot of those ideas that I had in my head of what success was and what, um, I should mm-hmm. be proud of because I just remember, like, like when he when he was in hospice, and like his coworkers and his friends would um, like visit him and talk to him, and like after they would speak with them, they would talk to me and they would say, "Hey, like, I just want you to know that like your father was really kind to me, or he like he he was always a great friend to me, or he um, you know always helped me in this way and." everything that his coworkers or his friends would say, like, none of them would ever speak about his title or his accomplishments at work or, like, what he did for his team. Like, it was always about who he was as a person and, like, the relationships that he formed with that, with those people. And it just made me really think, like, oh, wow, like, you know, you could live this full life and do all these things um, within your job and, like, you know, do all these things that what society considers our success would be success, but like you know, in the end, most of the people just all they really cared about was just who he was as a person and how he treated them, and that r- really just yeah made me think differently.
1: So Frankie, you you write this beautiful open letter to your father yeah. in the book, and I, I recommend everyone picking up the book and reading it because again, the the writing is is wonderful. I do want to pivot uh pun intended to your world of tech.
0: Yes. Um
1: I think we don't talk about many people who work at worked worked past, present past future at Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> um it is part of our culture these days yes. this Facebook. Yes. Um you invented or were part of the team that created Facebook Live. I guess yeah. like was what was it like working at facebook and second question is what was the food like at facebook shout out to oh like, my god what, 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 <laughs>
0: what's it like i mean yeah i think honestly that was probably one of the reasons why i took the job was the food um funny the, the food was crazy like i mean yeah it's like a disneyland where you you walk in it's like a campus and um you know there's like mm. an arcade and there's like for cafeterias and there's restaurants. There was like a sushi restaurant when I was there that you could just walk in and sit. They had like a family style restaurant where like they had servers <laughs> and you didn't have to pay for it. It was like it just felt it felt very surreal. Um, and I think looking back now, you know, all that stuff is there, so that like you stay and work <laughs> yeah. harder and longer. Um, yeah. But I I don't know. I look at my time at Facebook. Um, like I I I I think I I look at it fondly. Like I. I think for me, I appreciated more what I learned from the people that I worked with. So like my team, like Mm -hmm. I felt like I worked with a lot of different disciplines. Like I worked with engineers and product managers and, um, I learned about a lot about marketing and, um, how to launch a product and how to, um, you know solve these really like large problems um and distill it down to a solution over a short period of time and yeah. i think i've taken a lot of those skill sets and and applied it to the way i've approached um like my blog and the book and how i've kind of um created this brand around it mm-hmm. but um yeah i mean obviously you know facebook is so omnipresent in our lives and i do yeah. have a lot of mixed it's- feelings about you know yeah. once it's done uh, for people and their mental health and, and society as a whole. But I think personally, mm-hmm. I do, I do appreciate that I was able to learn so much when I was there. So
1: yeah, I mean, and copping that Toro would have been really pretty sweet in, the, in between meetings. <laughs> yeah. You know, at the, at the free sushi bar yeah. for real. Yeah. I feel like that would honestly um, keep me there, even though there's maybe. Um, you know the algorithm running your life is, yeah. is 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 an interesting topic for another day. Speaking about another big brand that's part of your life, it's also part of my life. Yes, let's talk about Costco. Yeah, I feel Costco is is through is through, is a thread throughout your book. Yeah, I got love for Costco. Yeah, what is the, what does the the that little store
0: Costco mean to you? Oh, I I love Costco as well. Like I I feel like I have a lot of good food memories from Costco. Like you know. On Sundays, you know, after we would go to like church, we'd always go to Costco, and we would all just our lunch would essentially just be us going around all the sample tables and just over and over <laughs> again, like getting yes. like each family member. We would each like we'd separate. We'd each get three. I'd be like, oh, I'm getting one for me, and my mom, and my dad, and then my mom would be like, oh, I'm getting one for my son and my my husband, and then like we'd have like <laughs> nine samples each that we could eat. <laughs> like, um, Love that. and yeah, like I think for me, like. I just remember my, my, my parents, they always cooked more so out of efficiency than, like, making this grand meal. Like, I think I learned a lot of the, like, traditional cooking through my grandparents. But, like, my parents were both full-time working. Um, and so they worked pretty long hours. And a lot of the way they cooked was through, like, meal prepping or just getting a bunch of, like, one thing. And then, like, eating that same thing over a course of the week. And um, a lot of things that were microwaved. And so... I feel like with Costco, like, I always loved getting a big box of microwavable, like, corn dogs or potato skins or pizza rolls. And, like, the fact that you could have, like, a Costco-sized version of that, that gets us. Oh, my
1: God, like a like a 36-pack yes. of Totino's uh, yeah. pizza rolls? Yeah, 100%. Um,
0: yeah. It's, it's the best. It really is the now, best. Now,
1: I want to find out your take on Taiwanese cuisine because I think— mm-hmm. um, it's a nuanced uh topic right like uh, geopolitical situation aside we won't even go there but like i'm saying about the cuisine itself how do you
0: describe it as a singular cuisine yeah i think it's really interesting because i think as a kid i got that question a lot and i used to feel again like some level of shame because I'd be like a lot of people would ask me, Oh, you're from Taiwan. Like, what does that mean? Like, what kinds of foods Mm. do you eat? And at that point, like I had never been to Taiwan as a kid. So I, I could only express what Taiwanese food meant for me in the context of what my grandma would cook for me. And she is obviously like, you know, ethnically from China, but then immigrated to Taiwan when she was younger as a kid, so she considers herself Taiwanese, but a lot of the foods that she would cook for me, you know, some were from the mainland, some are adapted through her living in Taiwan. So obviously, like you had have like, you know, distinctly Taiwanese dishes like beef noodle soup and, you know, sticky rice meatballs and, um, you know, soup dumplings. But I think for me, like I've never really been able to pinpoint, like, what is it? What is distinctly Taiwanese that makes Taiwanese food Taiwanese food because I think a lot of it is such a blend of like mainland Chinese immigrants and people who've lived Mm in Taiwan and and then for me like I I I wanted to write a book that explored the kind of messiness that is like figuring out your place uh, within your heritage even if you don't necessarily like know um a lot about it, in the sense that, like for me, like even though I was Taiwanese as a kid, like I never always felt fully Taiwanese because I was like, oh, I've never even been there. Like, and the only mm-hmm. window I had to Taiwan was through my grandma's cooking in like my suburban kitchen in Ohio. Um, but then I also never felt American enough because, you know, I was Taiwanese and I looked different, and I couldn't fully relate to to American culture sometimes when I was with my friends, and so. Um, I feel like again going back to that in between space. Like I think the book is very much about exploring what Taiwanese American cooking is in the context of someone who's figuring out their identity and mm-hmm. figuring out what it means to be, you know, their their heritage and their culture.
1: Did you make it back to? Did you make it to Taiwan? Did you make it to China? Have you traveled? Have you have you seen these areas?
0: Yeah. So I I went once as a kid when I was like eight. So I barely remembered it then. So the first time I went back was just for a solo trip by myself when I was, um, like 24. So like right after my dad passed, I was like, um, was when I went for the first time, um, just to kind of eat and explore and talk to people. Um, Mm. and then I went again when I was 25, um, or 26, um, when I first met my boyfriend and then we just like went on a spontaneous trip to Taiwan and so I got to show him around and, and eat all the That's
1: foods. what I, I, feel like the spontaneous trip to Taiwan, I've heard of many folks doing that and yeah. it feels like it's a very, uh, tourism, uh, happy and friendly place. I feel mm-hmm. everyone, I, I, so it's like at the top of my list to visit. Oh Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like a beautiful place to, to to hang out and eat a bunch of food.
0: Yeah, it's such an amazing like food country, and Taipei specifically is like where I usually land. And mm-hmm. like, I just think everywhere you go, it's there's just food, like you know, the street stands and like the little malls and even like like oh, yeah. just like I don't know, and it's, it's all very um, like unfussy food, like it's all food that feels very home style, like. Um, and it doesn't feel very touristy either. Like it feels like you can kind of just like almost like live a local's life and kind of like go to the spots that they go to. And, um, and yeah, it's, it it feels pretty like low key relative to like going to like a bigger city, like, I think like Seoul or Tokyo.
1: Yeah. yeah, and and of course the island nature of it, the it's it's there's some tropical more mm-hmm. tropical climates there too. Yes. I would imagine.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's fun to go like outside of the city to like yeah the mountains yeah. or to yeah places that feel more yeah tropical.
1: Let's talk about butter mochi cinnamon toast crunch. <laughs> yeah, I feel like when you mix these two together, you're gonna have a happy harmony. I'm I'm a huge fan of of, of cooking with cereals. I'm a I'm a fan of puppy chow. Yeah called Muddy Buddies in the East Coast. Yes, uh, I love those. They're Chex. so good. Yes. Yeah, so, so do you call it Muddy Buddies yeah. or Puppy Chow? We, what is your...
0: I called it Muddy Buddies. Yeah. I, I've always called yeah. it Muddy Buddies. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In Michigan, there it's called Puppy Chow for whatever reason, oh, but that's a peanut butter checks mix in chocolate. Yeah. Now, how do you uh, think about cooking with a cereal? I, you also cook with Reese's Puff yes. cereal. Like, shouts to that. That's that's like number... That's on the podium for me for, for children's yeah, cereals. Yeah. I love that. But how do you think about cooking with cereal? I feel like it's not always articulated in cookbooks mm-hmm. um,
0: that well, and you've done a cool job here. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, for me, yeah. it was more of like an expression of what I loved during childhood, like growing up in the Midwest, which was like, yeah, I loved processed cereals and um, hmm. Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Rishi's Puffs, like Captain Crunch, like all of the all of these cereals, like, I loved just as much as I loved, you know, dumplings and scallion pancakes, mm-hmm. like they're very much a part of my like, culinary um, memories. And so I I knew I wanted to have a sweets section that kind of paid homage to like the Midwest and to like that suburban kid life, you know, eating like yeah. <laughs> bowls and bowls of sugar. And um, like, I wanted to kind of Communicate that through, like, if I had this like ideal bake sale, like, what would I do for that bake sale if I was a kid again and I could cook? And I was like, oh, I would totally just use all the cereals that have sugar and have all these different flavors and 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 make different treats out of it. So that's kind of Yum. where it stemmed from.
1: Really, really nice. So, Frankie, you've been asking our cookbook authors um, to give a little. To give a little press a little little shine to the to the last recipe appearing in the book. it oftentimes is overlooked in press it's often overlooked by readers, even so your the last book the last recipe in first generation is maple toast mm-hmm. so let's talk about that recipe. Where did it come from? When did you develop it? what's going on there?
0: yeah, so well, it's funny that wasn't supposed to be the last recipe, but it was added like mm. very last minute, but that toast is kind of. It stems from um, a bread recipe that's in the, um, I believe in the first or second chapter. And the bread recipe was, um, I believe it's called Fluffy White Cornbread. So I mm-hmm. wanted like a, I wanted Sounds to good. create a bread that tasted like cornbread, but also had the texture of Wonder Bread. Because um, I grew up going to Cracker Barrel, so I loved their cornbread. That was like yeah, my It is good cornbread. Yeah. So that was my yeah. introduction to cornbread. And then I've always loved just like pure white bread, like the really standard white bread. So I wanted to create like my own version of that. I kind of combined those two flavors and textures. And then the toast is essentially like um, kind of a way where you can treat that bread and make it um, almost like a dessert. So it takes a big, thick slice of that. Particular white bread, and then you um, you make like a maple honey butter um, mm-hmm. that then you spread on the toast, and then you just add some like walnuts, and there's black sesame, and there's flaky salt, and I kind of wanted to recreate the flavors of like again like a cereal or like a um, like a French toast cereal or like a cinnamon toast crunch. I forget what the there's like a there's like a cereal that's like French toast, but I can't remember the name. But.
1: It's like a cinnamon toast crunch offshoot yes, and exactly. I think it might be called French toast crunch. Yeah, maybe yeah. Um, so don't, don't quote me on that but it has like a, a very similar graphic design. Yeah from cinnamon toast crunch but it's it is definitely a grail for for cereals you can't find it everywhere yeah so that
0: was that was kind of like my like inspiration image when i was creating this toast recipe so
1: so french toast emoji almost yeah exactly or or toast
0: so why was it
1: added last like at last minute why 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 did you sneak it in was it something you just felt compelled to
0: to get in there yeah so it was originally part it was attached to the bread recipe. So it had the bread recipe and then right after it was the toast recipe. But then in edit, we were like last minute, we're like, Oh, maybe we should just like move this to the sweet section because it doesn't make sense in all these savory dishes. So, um, yeah. So that's how it ended up in the back.
1: Took an editor's eye to to knock it to the last one, but that that is definitely has happened in the past. Um, let's talk about chili crisp cooking with chili crisp. Mm -hmm. I asked because we've, We've had uh, Jingao on the show. Yeah. We've we've talked about Chili Crisp. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's so many great products out there to buy. But then we have them in our fridge, and we can't just eat them by the spoon. I mean, you can, and that's mm-hmm. definitely not discouraged. But how are you cooking with Chili Crisp? It's in your book in many places. Yeah.
0: I think – I mean, obviously, I use it as just a condiment. Like, I love putting it on just anything I'm eating if I need a little texture or spice. But – For me in the book specifically, like I love using it almost as a base for sauces. So um, like there's a whole chicken recipe, um, like it's a whole roasted chicken and the end topping is essentially a chili crisp honey butter sauce. So it's like a base of chili crisp and butter and um, some vinegar and um, yeah, it's just like this almost like savory, sweet, spicy, little crunchy. Um, and I just like love that it makes such a good sauce base. Like you can add acid to it. You can add, um, you know, um, savoriness to it. Like with soy sauce, you can add sweetness to it to make it like almost like a glaze and you can put that on vegetables. So I just like love the versatility of chili crisp.
1: What's food like in Seattle? Are you, are you finding, um, there's uh, a restaurant culture that maybe we are, we're not writing about as much in the East coast. I feel like I, I don't, here's too much about Seattle. Yeah. I wish we did hear more.
0: I think it's I, I think it's coming up. Like, I so I lived in San Francisco for seven years, so I was, I was a little bit spoiled, but, mm-hmm. um, and then like obviously the first year I was here was the pandemic, so I never went out. So mm-hmm. it's only been the last year where I've really been like trying different restaurants. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think there is a there is a good food scene. Like, there's um, Some of my favorite restaurants are like, um, there's this one called Musong, which is like a Filipino restaurant in, in Columbia City that essentially does um, a play on essentially like grandma food. So they take mm-hmm. like homestyle Filipino dishes and they elevate them into these like restaurant quality dishes. Um, there's this restaurant I just went to called The Boat. So I feel like there are a lot of cool like divey restaurants that are great in Seattle so like this place called The Bo mm-hmm. only serves fried chicken and waffles but in Vietnamese style um, yeah nice so yeah so just like there's like a lot of these cool up and coming um, or established obviously like restaurants that are really delicious that I think are <laughs> worth trying so
1: are you uh, gonna work in tech again or do you currently work in tech are you back in that in, in those in that, in that slack channel world
0: <laughs> no I I quit my tech job right before I started writing the book so I was nice. I was um, at Airbnb up until the end of 2020 um, and then mm. as soon as I had to start writing I was just like I can't balance these two kind of jobs any longer because I I was I was working on the blog even up through working at in tech yeah. Um, and I, it was already getting a little bit kind of, you know, out of whack in terms of my schedule and having to like cook on zoom meetings for like product reviews or I'd be like (laughs) kneading dough and I'd be like, um, in a, in a presentation about, you know, metrics. (laughs) Um, and so I think by the time that I had to write the book, I was just like, I need to put my attention to this and give my full focus to, to telling this story. And so, um, yeah, so I haven't worked in tech since.
1: Good for you. Yeah. That's amazing.
0: Thank you. <laughs> all right,
1: Frankie. We asked all guests on Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited funds. Wow. Frankie, what would that book be?
0: You know, I would, honestly, I, I've, I love movies and I love fiction novels. And so I think I would I would love to write a cookbook that almost was like a fiction novel Cookbook hybrid where there's like a beginning, a middle, and end, and it has like an arc, but it also has recipes. Um, I think it would be like a coming of age novel, but also like I've always loved like um, you know I've always loved Star Wars, I've always loved Lord of the Rings, <laughs> and um, like like very kind of like cinematic um, movies, and so I think I would want that kind of energy in this cookbook, and so. Oh, so then I think I would, if I had unlimited funds, I'd obviously take as long as I could to just write, (laughs) like I I would have no deadlines. I, I think I would do, um, instead of essays, I would probably do like full on like visual treatments for each essay. So, um, whether that would be like, like, I would love to do a section that's like purely just like a graphic novel in a cookbook where like the essay, instead of just writing, it's like a full graphic novel where I could hire an artist and they could like create storyboards for me. And like, you really get immersed in a story
1: into that, like hiring storyboard artists for a cookbook. Yeah. Yes. Totally. Good. Good call.
0: I think I would also, obviously I'd pick, um, like I, I love getting into the nitty gritty details of like the creative direction of a cookbook. So obviously, I would choose the best like kind of matte slash semi gloss paper that's thick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would choose yeah. like a cloth bound cover. I'd have embossing. <laughs> um, yeah, and what else? I
1: you call the shots for the deboss emboss. Yeah,
0: I would here. hire yeah. like the like the best. I don't know like design firm to do all the design. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I probably, yeah, I would spend a lot of money.
1: Um, I love it.
0: Yeah.
1: I can't wait to see that. Frankie Goth, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Yeah,
0: thank you so much for having me.
1: The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.